All right. Well, we're going to go right into the sermon, and we'll try to make it through. Um, we have been going, and I, I, I have a lot of ground to cover. Um, and uh, we've been going through the book of First Timothy, uh, as you guys know. Uh, Paul's letter to Timothy he was the pastor of Ephesus, along with the the, uh, the rest of the Ephesian elders, and um, and this letter addressed to Timothy was to be read publicly in the context of God's church gathered. And so that was the expectation as we kind of know by now. I'm just kind of giving you these things just by way of remembrance that I could very well read the book of 1 Timothy in front of you, and that would be somewhat similar uh, to what had gone on uh, in the church of Ephesus all those years ago. And and this morning, we're going to look at elder ministry, and we're specifically going to look at the the character qualifications of an elder. Next week, we're going to look at uh, the character qualifications of a deacon. And, um, And so... And my prayer is, and, and, and what we aim to do is to honor Christ by functioning, but, but both believing and functioning according to his word. And, uh, and so this really, uh, again, is, is strengthening our foundation as God's church uh, because we want to see what the Bible says and we want to, as best as we can, with the Holy Spirit's help, apply what the Bible says in the context of our local church. And so, so let me read. We're in chapter 3 of First Timothy, chapter 3, and we're gonna, I'm going to start with verse 1. And I'm going to read down to verse 7. And so the Apostle Paul, he penned this letter uh, to Timothy the pastor, consequently the rest of the church, and he penned this under the inspiration of the Spirit. He said this, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Verse 2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, verse 3, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Verse 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word, God. We thank you for this time that we can open it, Lord, and help us, God, to be attentive to it, God. Help us to be um, open uh, toward it, God. Soften our hearts, Lord. Help us uh, by your Spirit to see what we need to see and to apply what we need to apply. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, the first thing that we need to see is that there, there are two presuppositions that we should have when, uh, when approaching uh, this uh, passage of Scripture, or at least two presuppositions that we should have when we're approaching uh, this passage of Scripture. And, and the first is this. Presupposition one is that only Jesus qualifies perfectly. Right? Only Jesus qualifies perfectly. Therefore, we as a church, we need to look to him as our ultimate shepherd, and we look at our elders in the church as under-shepherds that he's entrusted with the care of his people. And so when we uh, see elder uh, ministry talked about in the local church, we ultimately want to make sure that we're putting our faith 
in uh, the ultimate elder, which is Jesus Christ, because to put our faith in an under-shepherd um, will ensure that we're let down, okay? And so Christ Jesus alone is the one who doesn't let us down. He's the one that fulfills this role perfectly. The second presupposition that, that we should have and that, that I would hope we can all, as we're listening, think with this as well, is that not every man should be an elder, and the office of elder is for qualified men, but every man, and I would even go as, as far as to say, of course, every Christian should pursue the character qualities of an elder, okay? Every Christian should pursue the, el- uh, the elder, uh, the character qualities of an elder. And so I just kind of wanted to, to throw that out there for us as a grid, if you will, by which we're going to look at 1 Timothy 3, these first seven verses. And certainly this is how we're, the grid we're going to look through even next week when we look at deacon ministry as well, okay? And the second thing that we're going to spend a few minutes on uh, that we see from our text that you can jot down is that eldering, I don't even know if that's a word, but I used it, but eldering is a noble task. Eldering, according to the scripture, is a noble task, okay? In chapter 1, verse 15, and then in chapter 3 here, verse 1, we see the phrase, this saying is trustworthy, okay? And again, that's said one other place by Paul, and it said back in chapter 1, if you remember, he says this, this saying is trustworthy, and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, okay? He came into the world. Again, that's what we're more mindful about this Christmas season. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost, right? Paul, again, describing himself as the chief of sinners, right? So, so I think there were at least two common sayings in Ephesus that were accepted by this local church. And the first is that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Okay, that's the first trustworthy saying we saw back in chapter 1. Secondly, is that the pursuit of the office of eldership is a noble calling or noble task, rather. And it's interesting that both of those verses share that what could be considered a creedal, if you will, characteristic. The saying is trustworthy. And that got me, as I was preparing this, that got me uh, asking the question, what is it that makes the pursuit of the office of an elder a noble thing? What is it about pursuing that office or that task or that calling that makes that a noble thing. And it, and it seems to me that the answer is found in the first creedal statement in verse 15 of chapter 1. It's that Christ came to save sinners. Right? Elders are to spend their lives serving in such a way that shows their people that Christ came to save sinners. Right? Christ is the one that makes that task. And note that our text doesn't just speak of an office, but it speaks, and I hope you're looking at it with me, but it speaks of a task. Right? There's work involved. We live in a church culture and in a society that's obsessed with titles and with offices and things of that nature. But, but this task came, uh, implies hard, grueling, joyful work. All right, and, and it's Christ alone that makes that task noble. 
It's Christ alone that makes that task noble. And if Christ, the Savior of sinners, is what we're to herald, okay, if that's what we're to herald, that unchanging, trustworthy statement, then the very way that we function as elders, either A, communicates that message effectively, albeit imperfectly, but it either communicates that message effectively or our eldering taints the testimony of Jesus and has a corrupting influence on the church. The the elders of a local church should continually, faithfully, humbly, warmly direct the church to the chief elder who's Christ Jesus. The, The elder should, in fact, continue this elder or shepherding work that Christ inaugurated, that Christ created. And while what we're looking at this morning deals chiefly with the character of an elder, I want to highlight that this task, again, and that, that word task here could be translated as work or, or duty or workmanship, but this task that Paul speaks of here in verse 1 is a shepherding task. And what are the different ways we see good shepherds function in the Bible. And I could really do a biblical survey on, on shepherding, and we would spend an exorbitant amount of time looking into that. But, but just a few key things that we can see as it relates to good shepherding. Some from the old, and then I'll eventually move us to the new. But Abel, we see right out of the gate in Genesis chapter 4, verse 2, Abel, who was a godly man, was a keeper, a protector of the sheep. He was a shepherd. We see Genesis chapter 46, verse 32, that shepherds were to feed the sheep. They were to feed the sheep. They were to make sure that they had the right nutrition. Third, shepherding was a lowly occupation as it related to the world. It it didn't bring worldly acclaim. It didn't bring worldly admiration. I'm not even sure that, uh, that it was something that someone would aspire to be necessarily, but you see that uh, a character trait of many good shepherds in the Bible uh, was one of faithfulness and perseverance and adversity and care and paying attention to the sheep they were entrusted with. You see this Genesis chapter 46, 34. A shepherd fought off predators even at the risk of his own well-being to protect the sheep. 1 Samuel seventeen thirty-four. A shepherd would gather and console young lambs and gently lead them. Isaiah 40, verse 11. A shepherd seeks scattered sheep. A shepherd seeks scattered sheep. Say that ten times fast. Ezekiel 34, 12. That the shepherd leads, guides, and provides. We see that in the famous Psalm 23. And of course, Jesus being the perfect shepherd, right, in in the ultimate fulfillment of what it is to be a good shepherd and to do all that a good shepherd does. He says this about himself in John chapter 10, and and we're going to see how this is a fulfillment, not just of what I kind of briefly read off there, but but even a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy that I'm going to read in just a moment. But Jesus says this about himself, John chapter 10, verses 11 to 18. says, I, speaking of himself, he said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
Verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge charge I've received from my Father. So, So there's a sacrificial nature that we can see here as it relates to shepherding. There's this attentiveness there. There's, there's commitment that we see there. There's approachability there. There's availability that, there, uh, that we see there. There's a fighting off wolves, which we could say are, are godless people or ideologies or philosophies that are, are fueled by the devil for the good of the sheep. We see that there's intimacy there. A shepherd is known by sheep. A sheep know the shepherd. He's among his sheep. And Jesus is that good shepherd as we see. And we all, including elders, are his sheep. And in verse 16, in that John 10 passage, he says there's one flock and there's one shepherd. There's one flock and there's one shepherd. Right? Christ is the good shepherd of his universal church all those that belong to him in the past, all those that belong to him in the present, all those that belong to him in the future. And he has entrusted and he's called particular sheep who are men to shepherd on his behalf and in his name. And he's called them to shepherd visible local churches. And these men are called elders. This is a lowly but noble task Christ is the one that makes it noble. The next thing, and we'll get, we're here, the character qualities, but the character qualifications, and you can write this down if you're taking notes, the character qualifications of an elder are the outworking of the fear of God, right? And we kind of see that even connected a little bit from what we talked about last week. And and to piggyback a little bit off of last week, just hear another definition for a moment of of the fear of God from from this man. He's gone home to be with the Lord, but his name was John Murray. He co-founded Westminster Theological Seminary. He said this, he said, The fear of God is the fear which compels adoration and love. It is the fear which consists in all reverence, honor, and worship. It's the reflex in our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. And I would argue that the character qualities of an elder flow from that awe and that reverence and that worship that should be present as it relates to them and their position in their worship of the Lord. And I think that this is evidenced in our text in many ways, but... But there's two ways that I see this just clearly evidenced uh, in our text. One is an elder not being a recent convert. We say that in verse 6. All right? In other words, there needs to be a good, godly, measurable consistency in his walk with the Lord. And I, and I think the second evidence is in our text and his aptitude to teach. 
In verse 2, both of the qualifications of not being a recent convert and being qualified to teach requires that there be just this warm, submissive devotion to God and to His Word that He's spoken and He's preserved. It requires some history and some practice of fearing the Lord. This needs to be evident in the life of an elder before he's installed as an elder in the church. And this should be an ongoing point of growth for an elder in elder ministry. Now, as we look at the specific character qualifications, we see Paul give 10 positive charges uh, and then five negative charges, depending on how you divvy this up. And, and we, as, we, as we see this list of 15 qualifications in this passage, we need to see what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us. We need to see his overarching message. or We need to be asking, what is the overarching message um, to the church of Ephesus and to us here at Deer Park Fellowship as it relates to this passage? And I think that it's this. I think Paul is saying that the character of an elder, right, and this is crucial for us, the character of an elder directly impacts the health of a local church, whether the congregation knows the elder well or not. Paul's saying that the character of an elder directly impacts the health of a local church, whether that congregation knows the elder well or not. And, and by health here, I mean the spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional health of a church, right? Ungodly and domineering, manipulative elders can and sadly do wreak havoc on the lives of God's church. And ultimately, compromise elders compromise the witness of a church even. This, this isn't a light issue. And, and we see a warning from the Lord regarding shepherds. Even in the Old Testament, and this brings us back to Christ, coming in his incarnation as the good shepherd in John chapter 10 that we read just a moment ago. And, and I would have you to think on Christ being the fulfillment of this passage even as I read it. But listen to the prophecy of the Lord from his prophet Ezekiel in chapter 34 to the shepherds of Israel. Listen to this for a moment. This is the word, Ezekiel speaking on behalf of God as a prophet of God, okay? The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel says, Son of man, prophesy against... The shepherds of Israel prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the stray you've not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. Verse 5, here's the result of that kind of shepherding. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep 
but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am, probably some of the most sobering words of Scripture here, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand, and I'll put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I'll rescue my sheep from their mouths, and they, that they may not be food for them. He's calling them wolves. Verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I'll seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep, that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I'll rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I'll bring them into their own land, and I'll feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I'll feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I'll bring back the straight. I'll bind up the injured. I'll strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I'll destroy. I'll feed them in justice. Those are serious words. And you see this same thing in Jeremiah chapter 23. And, you know, I walk away from that as an elder, praising God that the Lord has fulfilled his promise and that Jesus came and was this good shepherd. He's the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. He's the fulfillment of Jeremiah 23. He's the fulfillment of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. You could even see echoes of Psalm 23 as I read. If, if, you know, when when you hear of the good pasture that I was reading about. But this is what Christ in his earthly ministry did. Right here at Christmas time, we're celebrating Christ becoming a man. And Christ, who is truly God and truly man, is the elder shepherd who's always qualified. He's the elder shepherd who's always qualified. He's the elder shepherd who never lets you down. He's the elder shepherd that brought redemption to his sheep by laying his life down for them. And praise God for that. But in this Old Testament prophecy, we can't neglect that there's a warning here, can we? There's a very stern, sobering warning that we see here to the, that are given to the shepherds of, of Israel. And, and elders and those aspiring to the office of elder in a particular church need to pay attention. Right? If, if this was God's warning to the shepherds of Israel, how much more should it be a warning for elders that are to care for God's church. We should tremble at the Lord's warning. We should tremble at the weighty threat of judgment when he says, I am against you if you scatter the sheep. I'm learning from another pastor, one who's been in ministry longer than I've been alive, that elders should conduct themselves and speak with judgment day honesty. Elders should conduct themselves and speak with judgment day honesty, not just because we're preparing those that God has entrusted to us for judgment day, much like parents are preparing their children, but because we stand before God, elders will stand before God and give an account for how we cared for His church. 
And this includes our character on the things that they don't know about. Having said that, the other thing we should notice as we look at a list like this, and I've mentioned this already at the beginning of the sermon, is how these character qualities really should, as, as we stare at them, they really should stand out to us as the normal outworking of someone who's been captivated by the gospel of God. Think, it how, think about how transformative and productive that a people could be for the kingdom of God, and if they're cooperating with the Holy Spirit of God and they're cultivating holiness in their lives. The, the, the way in which that looks should look ordinary to us. There should be nothing about this list that we're saying, wow, this, is, this looks like a parting of the Red Sea. Right? This should seem ordinary. And while we, can't, while we can't attain it this side of eternity to perfection, with God's help, we could be growing and struggling in the right direction. But let's look at the actual list together. I'm going to group them, like I said, in the positive and negative qualifications. As I do, I'm working through it like a list, okay? And so, and, and my aim is to just flesh out the qualities a bit more so we can understand this a bit better, and I promise I won't be too terribly long. But elders, according to the Scriptures, okay, verse 3, should not be drunkards. Okay, should not be drunkards, not given over or mastered by wine or alcohol of any sort, right? It, this is a thinking of and using a, a perfectly legitimate substance in terms of need, right? I need a drink is what the alcoholic says or thinks, right? Elders shouldn't be given over to addiction. They shouldn't be mastered by their appetite. They shouldn't succumb to the law of an addict who needs to self-soothe or numb or console themselves with substances. They shouldn't use a gift like wine in an unlawful way, right? So elders should not be drunkards. Next, elders shouldn't be violent, right? Think of the sixth commandment that I mentioned last week. This has both anger and murder implied. It literally means not a striker, not a brawler, right? This would be where we see cruel, bully types of elders. This is where elsewhere the Apostle Peter charges that the elders are not to be domineering. We see 1 Peter 5, 3. And the danger of this is that elders can justify being domineering, sometimes even unwittingly, right? Elders can justify being brutish in the name of advancing the gospel. Much damage has been done to the testimony of Christ and the body of Christ by elders who believe the ends, right, reaching the loss, which really just means, if we're honest, expanding my own kingdom justifies the means, which is spiritual manipulation or deceitfulness or dishonesty or constant deflection or guilt-tripping congregants or being merciless or intimidating. We're not to be violent here. We're not to be quarrelsome as we continue with the negative. Verse, verse 3 again. We looked at that word last week, but not being contentious, not battling over fruitless debates, and rea- in, in reality, hiding or cowering behind contentiousness to, again, deflect disobedience to God's word. And elders not to be a lover of money, we also see in verse 3. That is, not be enslaved by the pursuit 
of money, right? This could have similarities with drunkenness, right? The love of money is corruptible. Elders should never take a bribe. Can cause you to pursue shameful means of gain that Peter speaks of in First Peter five two. Paul speaks of in Titus one seven. And the last one I mentioned already, but they can't shouldn't be a recent convert. Some translations use the phrase "young scholar." Here and, and I think recent convert captures Paul's intent better. An elder should not be a new believer. Right? There's some spiritual maturing or spiritual aging that needs to have taken place. An elder should have weathered a, a few storms in his walk with the Lord. Right? An elder should have settled into his convictions, not that he isn't growing and not that he isn't uh, continually learning, but that his convictions are following a biblical trajectory. And and his walk has demonstrated a commitment to that biblical trajectory. In fact, Paul gives a warning for those who would ordain new converts. In verse 6, says this, that he he might become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Think for a minute about the young, zealous convert, right? Who, Who can be harsh in his dealings with people, Real, forgetting that he was saved just 10 minutes ago, right? Like we're really good. And, and think about us, even in our own walk with the Lord, as we're, as we're hopefully growing and we're on the right path and, we, and the Lord is sanctifying us day by day and he's renewing our minds with the word, how easy it can be when we, we understand God's word better and we're so passionate about it. And then you come across someone who believed what you believed 10 minutes ago, and you're so hard, you think, how could they believe that? Forgetting that you believe that. Right? We're, we're so good at being patient with ourselves, and we're so bad at being patient with other people, aren't we? We don't want to fall into the pit of the young convert. But this could be damaging. This is a snare for even the mature believer, right? And, and it can result in treating others harshly. It can result in pride or arrogance. It can result in being a merciless elder. Now, all of these should-nots, right, including the not-a-recent-convert one, if you follow the logic long enough, have, in my view, a common characteristic, which is a lack of self-control or a lack of sober-mindedness. And in God's providence, that's the remedy. That's the, 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 the counter found in those two positive commands. And we'll see in the positive commands the very remedies that we should be laboring in. And I'll mention those more in just a moment. But we need to ensure uh, that we are looking to the Word. We're rightly evaluating ourselves in the context of the local church as it deals with these character traits. But look with me at the remaining ten charges that, that are given positively. Seven, which occur just in verse two. All right, again, these would be remedies. And at the end of the day, every one of these should drive us to Christ, who again exhibited them perfectly, right? We want to be, uh, we want to be close to Christ. We want to be warmed by the Holy Spirit of God so that we can in turn exemplify these characteristics. But we see positively put verse two, in order is to be above reproach, which is to be beyond accusation. It isn't sinlessness, but it's to live your life before the face of God. Again, all all of this is a subset of fearing God. To live above reproach is to be mindful of God's omnipresence, which is that there's no place that we can escape the presence 
of God, and it's to be mindful of his omniscience, that he's all-knowing. And in, in light of that, the, the word behind it has this idea of living life without handles, right? Picture a suitcase, right? A suitcase has a handle. I can grab the handle. I can move that suitcase any place that I want to move that suitcase. The Apostle Paul is saying, be a suitcase without handles, or be a really heavy suitcase, one or the other. But we shouldn't be in a place where there can be accusations that can, can taint the testimony of God and His church. We see in verse 2, the husband of one wife, and this literally means one wife at a time is how that is translated. A man should be faithful, because a man can be married to one wife and be unfaithful, right? And a man should be faithful and committed to the wife that God has gifted him with, right? There, there's never an excuse for adultery, right? Elders have a high, holy view of marriage, right? And we should see even in this that polygamy is forbidden by God, even though you see men in the Old Testament sin and distort God's intent in this way. Now, the, the charge doesn't disqualify those that are single, okay? The Apostle Paul, for instance, was never married, and he's the one that wrote this Letter, the obvious question is, does this disqualify men who have been lawfully, according to the Bible, divorced or divorced before their conversion to Christ? And honestly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. How's that for an answer? That question for me, it it seems to go beyond what Paul's getting at. But but given the circumstance, I think a strong case could be made uh, either way. But an elder should be the husband of one wife. There should be sober-mindedness and self-control. I mentioned these already. We see that in verse 2. But elders should be watchful, which is a a sober-mindedness. It's a spiritual discipline. He should be even-handed. He should be prudent in character and in shepherding in the church. Elders should put to death the deeds of the flesh by God's grace. Elders should walk in the light. Elders should be respectable. Verse 2 there as well. And and I'm going to lump this in with another one. Well thought of by outsiders, verse 7. This means that an elder is to have control of his virtues. An elder is to have control of his virtues. And and who is it that defines virtues? It's the Lord. It's the Lord that defines virtues. We're to be well respected and well thought of according to the standards of God, not the standards of man, but the standards of God, which are good and beautiful and unchanging. Matthew Henry defines respectability and being well thought of by outsiders this way. He says that the elder must not be grossly or scandalously guilty. The elder must not live under an ill character. And we see hospitable. This is genuine generosity, and I I think even availability toward other people. Again, elders should be accessible. Elders should be welcoming. Elders should be approachable. They should be warm. They should be inviting towards those that the Lord has entrusted to them. Hospitality. And by the way, for all of us, just as a side note, I think one of the primary ways in which we're going to help advance the kingdom of God is by being hospitable to those outside of the kingdom of God. Should be able to teach. 
Lee Lavoie did the commentary for this Sunday, and he did a good job at, at breaking down the original languages and making that accessible, and I'd encourage you to read it. But I found that his findings on this, qualified to teach, were good. Our, uh, it, the able to teach he is, is better translated as qualified to teach. Are the elders qualified to teach. The person filling the pulpit most weak should be an elder, should be trending toward being an elder. Not that every elder has to fill the pulpit. There are other ways in which instruction takes place, but we should ask ourselves, are our elders qualified to give biblical instruction to the members of this church based both on their character and on their competence in God's Word? And I would say yes. Then we see gentle, gentle. And I want to press in on this for just a moment and bring it into clearer focus for us using just a couple of other passages because Christ-focused and, 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 and Holy Spirit-generated gentleness is the antithesis. It's the opposite of violence, which an elder should not be. Right? Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, that's the same word there, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. James 3.17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Titus chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, and Paul, which he's writing a letter here, um, and, and he speaks, he gives instructions on to how, appoint, how to appoint Elders, and he says this in this letter. He says, Speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. Right? And we see some related words here to show perfect courtesy toward all people, for we ourselves, and this is the mindfulness, this is the mindfulness that should come with not being a recent convert, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. These passages, although they're not related, all of them are not related to elder ministry per se, but they they help to put in high definition for us that word gentle, that that qualification of gentleness. Elders should be full of mercy. They should be full of mercy. That should be what we as elders are quick toward, what we, we run toward more. Right? Elders should be reasonable, especially with those that are struggling with doubts. They should be impartial. And the, the word gentle has behind it this idea of leniency when possible. Right? We, we shouldn't conclude that sin should be ignored. That's bad. But we should conclude that elders are ready and willing to call sin, sin, deal with sin, doubts, and suffering in a way that testifies to the redeeming, reconciling blood of Jesus Christ. Elders should be full of mercy. And then the last qualifier that we see is that elders are to be good managers of their home. We see that in verse 3. And managers of home, it includes the, the overarching trajectory of the health of the home. He, he, the elder must be a good steward of the resources that God has given him. And by the way, this does give us some insight into the reality that biblically speaking, the elder should manage the church. 
It isn't just instruction, although it is that, but elders are to ensure that their doctrine, and this is critical, elders are to ensure that their doctrine is seeping into how the church functions. You hear me say this a lot, but doctrine, right? what we believe is inseparable, or it should be inseparable, from our philosophy, how we function. Elders manage the church in ensuring that we're doers of the Word, not just hearers of the Word, not just acknowledgers of the Word. But Paul also gives a specific charge that these men should lead their homes in dignity, that this holy, morally upright gravitas, if you will, to to how an elder leads his home. This should be the case with all Christian men here, but he gives a charge here to these men that they should lead their homes in dignity and that their children in response should be submissive. There is an inseparable connection between an elder's leadership and the shepherding of his home and his leadership and the shepherding of of the church. There's an inseparable connection between an elder's leadership and shepherding of the home and his leadership in shepherding of the church, right? If an elder cannot shepherd and manage his family, how can he shepherd and manage God's church? That's the logic of this text, right? Titus 1.6, another passage, goes as far as to say that the elder's children are to be faithful. Some translations say believers, Now, we don't have control over the hearts of man. Only the Holy Spirit of God can regenerate, but our children should. If they're physically and mentally able, they should have a trusting, faithful posture in the Lord. If they're young, this childlike faith the Lord describes should be present. But they're to have this because they ultimately have been warmly convinced and shepherded in the home of consistent Believers, right? The kids shouldn't be open to accusations that they're apostate and living lives contrary to their profession or are unruly. Matthew Henry says that the elder's children should be obedient and good, brought up in the true Christian faith and living according to it, at least as far as the endeavor of the parents can avail. So what do we do with all this? We should do what we always do as a congregation. Again, we look to Christ. We look to Christ. As elders, we look to Christ. And in response to that that gaze, that constant gaze, we strive to function as His church according to His revealed will, His revealed will to us in the unchanging Word of God. A few takeaways for us. One, We should always place our trust and confidence, and this is in your worship, God. We should always place our trust and confidence in Christ. He is the elder that will never fail. He is the elder who perfectly measures up to God's standards. Secondly, this is my ask, please pray for your elders, Doug Hazel, Scott Shear, Scott Embleton, and myself. We need your prayers. Third, the list of qualifications should really be seen as the normal outworking of a believer committed to God and His gospel. So this is applicable to every Christian in this room this morning. Fourth, members should expect their elders. Members should expect their elders to be qualified according to the standards set forth in the Scripture. Again, not perfection, but they should be qualified men. Five, Elders will never achieve perfection this side of eternity. However, they should depend upon the Holy Spirit and their labors to be qualified for the glory of God 
and the good of his church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time that we've had together, Lord. Thank you for your word. God, help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to be changed, having spent time in your word, Lord. And, um, and God, we love you, and we give you all the praise and all the glory. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Well, would you guys-